If you would, go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 5. Uh, we've been out of our series in the book of Romans for a couple weeks now, and we'll be returning to it this morning. And whenever we take a break from this very in-depth, long series that we're doing in Romans, whenever we return from a break, uh, we like to make sure that we understand where we are in the book, the big picture of what Paul is seeking to accomplish before we jump back into the weeds, as it were. And so while you're turning there, I just want to catch you up a little bit on, on where Paul is in this letter to the Romans. So if you've been here with us from the beginning, uh, you'll remember that really the first four chapters, one through four, Paul has really been addressing this big subject of justification. That is, the unrighteousness of mankind and how we can become righteous through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And then uh, in 6 through 8, we will eventually get into the next big section, which is sanctification, how the truths of the gospel should be changing our lives. That is the way that we live as Christians. But in between 4 and 6, in between justification and sanctification, we have this chapter 5 uh, that seemingly doesn't flow into either justification or sanctification. And I think as Corey said a couple weeks ago, that it really kind of uh, works as a bridge between these two sections. And what I'm entitling it is the bridge of assurance. Because what I believe Paul is doing in really the whole of chapter 5 is he is seeking to provide assurance to his audience that their hope for eternity is secure. It's secure. They can have a firm hope that they will one day see and enjoy the glory of God. And so Paul is rehearsing these beautiful gospel truths to the people in order to assure their hearts of this reality. So as we look at the text this morning, as we read it over, um, be thinking in terms of Paul speaking these things and talking about these truths in order to produce assurance in our hearts about our future hope. So we're going to read actually from verse 1 of chapter 5 all the way through 11, and we're only going to be dealing with 5 through 11 this morning, as Corey dealt with 1 through 4 last time. Uh, but this passage is intimately connected, and so I want you to see that. Um, so if you're not there yet, Romans 5, we'll begin reading in verse 1. Paul says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we also rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him 
from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Father, as we come to your word this morning, we pray that the intention of Paul and the intention of your spirit here and having him to write this would be communicated to our hearts. That these truths that we see here through the power of your spirit working within us would produce assurance in our hearts of our future hope. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. What anchors your hope for eternity? Where do you find your assurance that one day you will see and enjoy the glory of God forever? An anchor is used to stabilize a boat when it is at sea. When they drop the anchor, it is meant to keep it in one place, to keep it from drifting to and fro on the waves of the sea. It's meant to stabilize it. Likewise, in this passage, Paul desires the same for us. He wants us to be stabilized and assured of our future hope, not for the sake of certainty and assurance alone, not so that we can just sit and be assured of our future hope, but this assurance is to be producing something in us. Paul is seeking to assure us of our future hope, So that we can live the life now that God intended us to live. And Paul understands that in order for us to live this life that God intends, we must be sure of our future hope. We must be stabilized in this regard. We must be anchored in truth. So as we look at our passage here this morning, Paul's aim really is to show us what ought to anchor our hope for eternity. But he also shows us what this anchored hope produces in us now. And really, Paul shows us two things that should anchor our hope for eternity. First, he shows us that our hope for eternity should be anchored by the love of God for us. And then he shows us that our hope for eternity should be anchored by the salvation blessings that we've already received. So let's first consider what Paul says about the love of God and how it should be an anchor for our future hope. As we look here and begin in verse 5, what we see is Paul talking about the experience of God's love in our hearts as an anchor for our hope. So this is what he says. He says, hope, and this is in reference to the hope from verse 2, that we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, that one day we will live and dwell with Him forever. This hope of the glory of God, verse 5, does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now what Paul is doing here in this verse is he's bringing together two different things. He's bringing together our hope for eternity with the love of God communicated to us through the Holy Spirit. He's seeking to link these things together for us. He says this hope that we have of this future glory 
is not a shameful hope. It's not an unreasonable hope. It's not a foolish hope. Why? Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Spirit who has been given to us. And if we have the experience of this hope, can we not be certain, or the experience of this love, can we not be certain of our future hope? Now Paul is telling us that we have good reason to hope in this future glory because God has brought us in an intimate and personal way to experience His love for us. In other words, the Holy Spirit actively bringing us to experience God's love ought to be an anchor for our future hope. This experience should stabilize us in regards to what our future holds. I remember the first time that I experienced God's love being poured into my heart. It was the point, at the point of my conversion. I remember uh, at the time I was really living a double life around my Christian friends and family. I was living one way. When I got outside of those circles and those bubbles, I was living completely different. And I remember the moment, the day, when what this text says here, I experienced. I was working at uh, Preferred over here at the shop, doing the same thing I did every day. I was packing up parts. I was putting in addresses. I was printing out labels. This day seemed to be the same as every other one that had come before it. But as I was typing in information and printing off these labels, I remember my mind just wandering to my life, beginning to think about the things that I was doing, this double life that I was living. And at this moment, there was this crazy weight that I would call it like a spiritual weight that was laying on my shoulders. That as I thought about my life and the evil and sin that I was engaged in and I thought about God, I knew He was angry with me. I knew that His Wrath, in a sense, was upon me. I knew that he was displeased with the way that I was living my life. But just moments later, as I was reflecting on this and as I was feeling this intense weight that I felt like wanted to push me to the ground, my mind turned to the cross. My mind turned to the gospel which I had known, I had been told the Gospel many, many times. I had professed Christ when I was a young child. But I had never truly been converted. And when my mind shifted from my sinful life and God's anger at me for it to the Gospel, man, this weight just lifted off my shoulders. And for the first time, I experienced God's love being poured into my heart through the Holy Spirit. And if you have been converted, you know this experience well. But brothers and sisters, the Holy Spirit not only pours into our hearts God's love at the point of conversion, He continues to do this throughout our Christian life to greater depths and degrees. And it is this experience of God's love in our hearts that Paul says should anchor our hope for eternity. 
Because you have experienced God's love for you, you should have a firm hope in your eternity. That's what Paul is telling us here. But we must be careful of something. Although the uh, personal experience of having God's love poured into our hearts is a beautiful anchor, by itself it is insufficient to anchor our hope for eternity. Personally, I don't know about you, but personally, although I have had many times when God has brought me to experience the love of God in my life through the power of the Holy Spirit, I have had just as many times, if not more, when my own sense of my sin has rivaled the sense of God's love for me in my heart. And if I were to base my future hope, my eternity, on the experience of God's love alone, man, I would be all over the place. I would be torn to and fro. Personal experience alone is not a sufficient anchor for our souls. But thankfully, Paul shows us that not only has God anchored our souls by means of our subjective, personal experience of God's love within us, He has also anchored our souls or is going to anchor our souls in this objective display of God's love to us. This thing that God has done that has taken place outside of us in history that we can see and that we can bear witness to. And what Paul is really aiming to do here is he's, he's aiming to bring together both the personal experience of God's love in our hearts with the objective display of God's love in the death of Jesus. And as these two things are united together, it provides for us a secure anchor for our souls, for the hope of eternity. And so he's spoken here about love as we have experienced it. Now in 6-8, through eight, he shows us this display of love in the death of God's Son for us that ought to come alongside our experience to anchor our souls. So look with me at verses 6 through 8. He says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, Paul doesn't simply say, your hope should be secure because God has shown his love for you in sending Jesus to die for you. No, he adds a little bit more here to show us the nature of God's love for us in sending Jesus, that we might trust him more. And he really says two things about God's love for us or this display of God's love in the death of Jesus. First, he shows us that it was a planned love. Look with me again at verse 6. He says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Now we're tempted to gloss over and skim over this phrase, at the right time. But it's actually central to what Paul wants to say here. You see, Paul is telling us when he says, at the right time, 
Paul is telling us that this display of God's love for us was planned in advance. That God had a time appointed that Christ would come and die. And that when he came, he wasn't early and he wasn't late. He was right on time. We see this all over the Bible. In the Gospels, Jesus is always talking about his hour. His hour had not yet come, or when the time had come for him to die, that his hour had come. We see Paul talking about the full, in the fullness of time. At the appointed time, God sent his son to die. But perhaps the most explicit scripture in this regard is Acts 2, 23. In Peter's sermon at Pentecost when he says this, This Jesus was delivered up, that is delivered up unto death, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Brothers and sisters, God's display of love to us in the death of His Son was not haphazard. It was not by chance It was not by some good roll of the dice or by some surprising fortune that this happened. No, this was planned by God before the world began. And this should tell us something about God's love for us, should it not? That God doesn't love us by accident. He loves us intentionally and purposefully. And not only does Paul show us that God's display of love in the death of his son was planned, he also shows us that it is divine. That is in contrast to a human kind of love. And we see this in verses 7 and 8. He says, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even To die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, in these two verses, Paul is contrasting divine love with human love. And he's showing us the difference between the two. In verse 7, Paul talks about the type of person humans are rarely willing to die for. He says, one will scarcely or rarely, if ever, die for a righteous person. And perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. Now, it doesn't take a whole lot of thinking on our part to realize that humans, we as humans, are rarely willing to lay down our lives for another person. But those who would be theoretically hypothetically willing to die for another person are willing because they believe that that person is worth dying for or that they deserve to be died for. In other words, they're a good person. They're righteous. I would would give my life for them. They're innocent. They're good, right? You see, we as humans can conceive of dying for someone else who is good, but it is inconceivable to give our lives for someone else who is evil. We just don't think that way, do we? You know, last time I checked, 
I couldn't find anyone who was willing to push Hitler off of a railroad track and take the oncoming train in his place, right? Like, how many of us are volunteering for that? We're just not. But it's at this very point that Paul shows us the drastic difference between human love and God's love. Look at verse 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, as you might imagine here, this phrase, while we were still sinners, is central to what Paul is saying. He's contrasting this hypothetical good person with us sinners. And brothers and sisters, it's not as though God sends Jesus to die for bad people who have hurt other people, although that would be an amazing act of love on God's part. No, what God does is far greater and more astonishing than that. God not only sends His Son to die for people who were hurtful and hateful to other people, God sends His Son to die for people who hated Him. Every sin is an offense against God. It's at this point that we should be thinking back to Romans 1 through 3 and thinking about the way that Paul describes the unrighteous person, that person who is insolent and haughty, who seeks to put God out of their minds, who has corrupt and sinful desires, who is disobedient to parents and malicious and gossips and haters of God. That picture of humanity that Paul paints for us is completely contained in this one word, sinners. And when we think about it in that way, does it not help us appreciate what Paul is saying here? Does it not put into perspective the unfathomable nature of God's love who He is willing to send His Son to die for? This is indeed unlike any love that we could ever produce. It is divine, unfathomable love. So back to Paul's point here. He is saying that because we have experienced, we have this subjective, personal experience of God's love in our hearts through the Holy Spirit, and because we have this objective display of God's love that He has given to us in the death of His Son, this planned and divine love, both of these things together as we see it and as we experience it should produce a firm anchor for our future hope. The rationale goes like this. If God has displayed His planned and divine love to us in the death of Jesus, and He has allowed us to experience that through the Holy Spirit, why would we think that our eternal hope is not secure? Why would we think that when we get 
on the other side of this life, that God isn't going to show us that same love. Indeed, he will, and that's the point here. So Paul shows us that the first anchor for our future hope is the intentional, unfathomable, and experiential love of God for us. But this isn't the only place that Paul anchors our future hope. He also anchors it in the blessings of salvation that we have already received. And we see this in verses 9 and 10. Paul says, Since therefore... We have now been justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Now the two salvation blessings that Paul mentions here are justification and reconciliation. But the focal point of these two verses is the repeated phrase, much more, much more. And by using this phrase, Paul is making a logical argument from the greater to the lesser. And the point of the argument here is this, that if God has done this great thing for us already, can we not be certain that he will do this far lesser thing for us in the future. That's the logic here. So let's consider what the great things are that God has done for us already and what those lesser things are then that we can be certain of. So Paul tells us in verse 9, he says first that we have been justified by Jesus' blood. Justification being the great thing that God has done for us. We have been declared just or pure or righteous by the all-seeing judge. The one who sees our every dishonorable desire and selfish, selfish action. The one who hears every corrupt thought and vain word spoken declares us not guilty. Brothers and sisters, there's not a greater thing in this life when you consider the height, the glory, the holiness, and perfection of God for Him to declare us, wicked sinners, just, not guilty, righteous. That's what this entire book is about. That's what our faith is about. That's what the gospel is about that we proclaim to people. Is that you are sinful in need of a Savior and Jesus came. That you might be saved. This is the greatest thing that God has already done. But not only does it say that God has justified us by the blood of Jesus, in verse 10 it says that we were also reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Now, could it get any better than justification? Apparently it can. What it means to be reconciled is that our relationship with God has been restored. So imagine this for a moment. The same judge who we have infinitely offended after pronouncing us not guilty doesn't just say, 
You can go on your way now. Go try to live a better life. Please get out of my courtroom. No, that same righteous and holy judge who sees all the parts of us that we sometimes don't even know about in ourselves pronounces us not guilty, but he doesn't stop there. He then welcomes us into relationship with him. He says, come, I want you to be my friend. Come, I want you to be in my family. I want you to be my child. It doesn't get any better than that. The great thing that God has done for us already is that He has justified us and He has reconciled us to Himself. So if we have this already, if He's done this for us already, if we are assured that this has happened already, then what are the lesser things that we can be certain of? Verse 9 says that since we have been justified by Jesus' blood, that we can be assured much more that we will be saved from the wrath of God. And verse 10 similarly says that because we have been reconciled to God, we shall be saved by His life. See, what Paul is telling us here is that because we have been justified and reconciled already, saved, he's talking about a future reality that we can be certain that when we see God, there will be no wrath for us that we will be saved on that day from the wrath of God. That we can be certain of it, that our hope for the future is secure because it's anchored in what God has already done for us. Brothers and sisters, we can be completely assured that we will see and enjoy the glory of God, that this hope that we have in our future does not put us to shame, is not foolish. Because God has shown His love to us. And because He has already justified and reconciled us to Himself. But again... Paul isn't just telling us these things to inform us about something awesome that is coming in the future that we should be looking forward to. All of this talk in the text about a future hope, we shall be saved from the wrath of God, we hope in the glory of God that is coming. All of this future talk in the text is moving toward a present reality. That this assurance that we have in our future hope should produce something in us and change the way that we live our lives now. Our last verse, verse 11, tells us what this assurance about our future hope should produce in us now. Paul says, catch the phrase that he uses here, more than that, more than everything we've just talked about, We also rejoice in God. 
through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Brothers and sisters, the life that God desires that you live is a life of joy in Him. And when we have our future hope anchored by the gospel that we've just seen, we will live a life of joy until we reach that promised glory. Paul is deeply concerned here to anchor our hope in the gospel because he longs for us to live a life of joy in God. That's what he's getting at. That's what he wants. And that's what God wants. But there's something that we must realize. That when our hope for eternity is not anchored in the gospel, we rob ourselves of the joyful life that God intended us to live. We live a joyless Christian existence. This is how this works. When our hope for the future is not anchored in what God has done, we will inevitably revert to anchoring our hope in what we do. We will begin to wake up every day and treat life as though we have to do these things for God so that we can be assured that He won't be angry at us on Judgment Day. We wake up every morning and we think, I got to go to church today because if I don't, I'm going to feel like I'm not secure in my future. I've got to wake up today and I've got to read my Bible and I've got to pray when I wake up this morning. And there's this motivation within us that is saying, man, if I don't do that, I'm going to be afraid. I'm going to be afraid of what my future holds. You see, when we lose sight of the gospel, when we lose sight of this anchor that Paul is fixing our future hope on, we'll throw down anchors ourselves. It's just the way we are. We're going to find certainty and assurance in something. The question is is it a sufficient anchor for our certainty and our assurance? Brothers and sisters, when we live this life, it is a joyless existence because we're no longer motivated by loving God and loving others. We're no longer motivated for living for Him out of a deep sense of joy in Him. It comes from a sense of fear and uncertainty, feeling like we got to do this to feel like we're good, to feel like we're okay. We miss the life that God desires us to live, a life of joy in Him when our hope for eternity is not anchored in the gospel. So, what anchor is creating assurance within you for your future hope? What's anchoring your hope for eternity? Another way to ask this would be, how is your joy in God this morning? Did you wake up this morning and come to church because you felt like if you didn't, you wouldn't be sure what God would do? Is that the life that you're living? Is that what your Christian walk consists of? 
Brothers and sisters, if this is where you find yourself this morning, you must return to the only sufficient anchor for your future hope. That's just what we sang about this morning. Christ. Christ alone is the only firm anchor for our souls. Brothers and sisters, believe me when I say this. If Christ will be your anchor day by day, He will not fail you. You will live that life of joy that God desires you to live. You will find that certainty. You will live in that assurance. And you will honor God profoundly in the way that you live your life for Him. Let's pray. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are stilled, when striving cease, my comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ, I stand. Father, would you allow us to internalize these truths in our hearts. That Christ might be our sure and true anchor and that we might live a life of joy in you. We pray this in the name of Christ and for his glory. Amen.